Sometimes I think that I might be a better looking Michael. Hey everybody, welcome to Studio Wesley Annex, our weekly discussion of the lectionary text. I am Derek Scott III, who is not the host anymore, but I'm stepping in the day for Michael Yerrick. Um, and I'm here with some of our Studio Wesley interns, and I'm so excited to be a part of this episode. So let's just go around the StreamYard room and see how people are doing. Joshua, how are you doing this morning or today? Because um, it may not be morning where you are. It's morning. It's it's 11. Um, I'm doing great. I love the energy you just brought, Derek. That was inspirational. You just nailed the intro. Hey, I'm trying. I'm not a Michael Yerrick, but I'm doing my best. <laughs> good great. to see you, Josh. Elliot, how you doing this morning, my guy? I'm good. I'm awake, and I'm I'm not. I don't have as much energy as you, but I have energy. So I get it. I get it. When you're in your 40s, you just have this energy, just like ready to go. You're still like in your late teens, and it, it's gonna. You're gonna get there one day. It's gonna be great. Yeah. And Sam, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm feeling great. I'm feeling kind of inspired by this energy we're all talking about, and I, I'm ready. I feel like this is going to be a talkative episode. I said that beforehand. Well, we'll see how it goes. I'm a little bit of a different kind of host, for sure, but I'm hoping to uh, do everybody proud. So um, I'm going to invite Elliot to open us up in prayer. Dear Lord, um, we come to you today to uh, talk about the lectionary texts, help our uh, talk to be insightful, help us to learn new things, and help the people who's watching to maybe pick up on a few things and learn as well. Uh, amen. Awesome. Well, we're going to have a great conversation today. We are in the uh, using the text for the 25th Sunday in Ordinary Time. We're coming to the end of the liturgical year. It's a really special time as we uh, end this liturgical year and get ready for the beginning of the new liturgical year with Advent. So today we're talking about, and we're going to change the order a little bit just to like shake it up a little bit because I'm here. That's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to talk about Judges 4, uh, Psalm 123, 1 Thessalonians 5, and Matthew 25. And so, Elliot, you're going to get us started with that Old Testament text from Judges, and uh, take it away, my friend. Yep, so uh, my text was Judges 4, 1 through 7, and this is kind of discussing uh, a little bit about Deborah and how she becomes, well, in when she becomes Israel's judge, and especially when we go on. And I thought it would be important to maybe, like, look back onto um like what who deborah is so deborah is one of the major judges in the story of how the israelites take the land of canaan and she is the only female judge the only one to be called a prophet and the only one described as performing a judicial function which was super cool i didn't know that well i didn't know all of those things about deborah um and this text is talking about how Israel, Israel was delivered from bondage of their enemies under the direction of, obviously, Deborah, who was both a judge and a prophet, or prophetess. I don't know. She prophesied that a woman would destroy the enemy's leaders. And if you read longer, you can see, obviously, this is a little snippet in a very big story. Um, but something that was stood out to me is there's lots of, like, numbers in this text. Like, it says, like, Sisera, who had 900 iron chariots, ruthlessly, ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 25 years. Um, it says, the God of Israel commands you, call out 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Nebulun. So it's like, uh, may, that, maybe that sounds stupid, but like, especially when you read verses in the Bible, you don't usually like see a lot of numbers or something like that. And when you do see numbers, it's important. So, and it means something. So that was interesting to think about for sure, especially I think they do a really good job of explaining the gravity of the situation. Like they do a lot of describing how like with the numbers, 900 iron chariots, like that's a really specific number. Um, but I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts. I definitely learned more about Deborah that I did not know. Um, so, yeah. Awesome. Let's uh, have that conversation. What's uh, what are we all uh, well, yeah, what are we all thinking? Um, I always love Deborah as a character in the Bible because I just always think it's really special when we have female characters in the Bible because a lot of times, like, it's talked about in a lot of especially like academic fields of like how important the women 
in the Bible are and how central a figure they are and how like a lot of times they're not talked about when we think about the saints that we worship or when we talk about the big prophets of the Bible, Deborah is often forgotten. And so to be able to show the specific instance and the story of why she helped and how important she is, um, I think is really interesting to talk about. And I think it's a text that we should dive fuller into um, in more like secular and religious circles. Yeah. Yeah, obviously, I agree with you, Sam. Um, just like the female representation in the Bible is like an important thing that we always need to remember and bring into those like religious circles, like you said. And also like what Elliot said about the numbers, it's interesting to see like the amount of detail they go in with Deborah because she is an important character in the Bible and that we need to remember, look at the specifics of what she did and just because how important she was um, in this book of Judges and really like the whole story of the Bible as a whole. Yeah, so I, I love Deborah and this little snippet I think is is interesting and I think it maybe it'll come a little more into view as we look at maybe the other text. Um, but one of the things that's I think important to remember about Judges more broadly and De how Deborah emerges um, the the people of Israel there isn't like a unified leader there isn't there isn't a king there isn't this one person who's sort of uh, determining how Israel is going to live together um, and definitely not one unified commander of of an army um, officially so the fact that Deborah rises up as a leader for the people of Israel particularly at a time of of war, a time of of, of military dust-up uh, is remarkable. Like it's one thing when there are systems in place that allow for people to like rise into levels of leadership. But that's that that's not the context of the people of Israel. I mean, you can just imagine sort of like 12 tribes are kind of like a confederacy, kind of like we'll hang out as long as it benefits us, but we are not obligated to like fight with you or fight for you or anything like that. And later on in Judges, that's some of the stuff that we're going to see. So it actually is quite remarkable that Deborah is able to emerge as a leader. And I think that maybe what's also in here is that her emergence as a leader is because, according to the text, um, she would sit under a palm tree and settle disputes between Israel. This is how she emerges. She doesn't emerge because she's chopping off heads, though I trust that she could do that. And she doesn't emerge even because she's like being aggressive within her tribe or against other tribes. Like we would normally see um, in, you know, tri within tribes, right? Like the, someone rises up as a leader because they're really aggressive in that space. So she emerges because of her wisdom. She emerges because of her ability to help people figure out what's going on, how to settle the disputes between them. And again, this is so key because Israel doesn't have anybody officially doing that. And, and Deborah emerges as this person who is um, I, probably just because of who she is, not because of her title, bringing her wisdom and helping Israel get over its stuff so it can overcome all of the strife that's around it. So I love Deborah, and I love, I think this little snippet is trying to show us of a, per, a person who has been given something, not necessarily a title yet, but given something, and they, they do something with it. I might be trying to get too far ahead of myself here, but that, that's my thought about uh, this text. And Elliot, I really appreciate you uh, raising it up for us. Sam, you've got something you want to add? I do. I do. I really liked what you said. And like, I, the beginning of what you said, what does it mean for somebody to, when there's the system doesn't set you up to be a leader, what does it mean to rise up instead? Mm -hmm. And what does it mean to rise up as a counterculture? Because like what you talked about, the sitting under a palm tree and deliberating was not, it was not the way things were done in that time. It's not the way things are done now. And so what does it mean to be a counterculture leader who like was able to rise up with a different spirit of leading and go into a place where she was not welcome? And there was no place for her, so she built her own. Um, so yeah, yeah, I just wanted to add on to that because I like yeah. the 
And, I, and it just dawned on me, Ellen, when you brought up the many numbers that are revealed in these texts, like one of the things I think that it's speaking to is that this is not easy stuff. This is actually complicated stuff. Like we're talking about vast armies and we're talking about actual like armies with like equipment. Um, we are not simply talking about like arguing over who gets to have bread today. Like it, it is actual, actual war that we're talking about and Deborah emerges as this leader that God believes can help the people of Israel um, move forward. So did you want to add anything, Elliot? I was just going to say, you're right. I saw math in here and I was like, oh shoot, it must be important. <laughs> yes. I love it. I love it. So, so good. Thanks, my friend. Well, we're now going to go to the Psalm for this week and Joshua's going to talk to us about it. Yeah, so I had Psalm 123, and there's only four verses, so it wasn't a ton of analyze, but I'm going to analyze it. Um, what I would really, after reading this, I then read the title again, and I found it really interesting. It's called A Song of Ascents. At least that's my translation. And I find it interesting. It's a couple things. First, when I read this, I was kind of like struck, almost, almost uncomfortable. I don't want to say like really uncomfortable, but... Just that we're being compared, the relationship we have with God as like slaves. Um, you know, I lift my eyes upon to you as the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master. I was like, whoa, that says a lot. That's very, I don't know, I feel like that's Old Testament stuff, um, especially especially like in this psalm. It's very common for that kind of deep, I want to say dark, but like slavery. Like it's an interesting, crazy relationship. Um so there's interesting to me that it's called a song of ascension or a song of ascents because you could tell when they're talking to God, they're really descending themselves. Like they're trying to bring themselves low as a slave and they're um, in order to ask for them to come up. They first have to go down um, and, and like acknowledge their place in a relationship with God. And when I first, it's kind of happens to me when I read um, some Psalms like this, but it reminds me of you guys probably didn't do this because you're all perfect children. But when I would go to my parents, particularly my mom and be like, mom, you're just so awesome. And I'm so lowly. Can I please spend some more time on the Wii or go outside and play in the rain or do something that she probably would not love for me to do. So that's kind of interesting. I kind of relate to the Psalm writer um, in this scenario of them you know, this ascension being like, yes, I want to be here. I want to be up high. But in order for me to do that, I have to swoop down low and acknowledge my place in the world and in this relationship. So I just found that that was interesting to me. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I have something to add. I was just going to say what stuck out to me about this is um, in verse uh, three, it says, have mercy on us, Lord, have mercy for we have had our fill of content. And I'm not going to lie to you. I thought I knew what content mean. And then I looked it up. And, uh, so I'm just going to read the definition, the feeling that a person or thing is beneath consideration, worthless or deserving scorn. So that's like, like, they're basically saying like, we've had our fill of like, no one cares about us. Mm. <laughs> like we've had like, we know how it feels to not be, not be loved. Like, let's be honest. That's really what it's saying here. And then it goes on to say, we have had more than our fill of the scoffing of the proud and the contempt of the arrogant. So it's like, just saying again, it's almost like, um, it's almost like a comparison, like comparing themselves to the people who um, maybe are doing better than them, or maybe they're not doing better than them. And they just are proud, which, you know, that could be the case, but I think it's really interesting how it talks about even though they've had these horrible feelings of just not feeling, feeling worthless, like not feeling important. Um, they, they still start the entire Psalm out with lift. I lift my eyes to you. Oh God. And it's like seeking for his mercy, seeking for his love. And obviously there's a lot of Psalms about that, but what stuck out to me about this is the, the, frame of mind that the song was written in, if that makes sense. So, yeah. So I also wanted to focus on a, like the similar section where they talk about uh, those who are above, because one of the things I always think about, and this is a stretch, but 
it comes up a lot in the Bible is the idea. This is a prayer to God talking about, we are faithful again, like Elliot said, bringing it, starting the Psalm with talking about how faithful you are. But then when you talk about those who are in positions of power or those who think they're in positions of power, those who are proud, the thing I always think about is what religion do they have? Because a lot of times in the Bible, this is Christians and Christians. These are people who believe in the same God and are praying to the same God in different ways. And it can completely set them apart. And so what I always like to think about is like this, and this puts too much of a simple narrative on it, but this kind of prayer of giving your full self, even with the horrible slave analogy, giving your full self to God and praying and giving everything you have towards another higher power, and yet still feeling scoffed by those who practice the same religion in maybe a different context and maybe a more self-fulfilling prophecy context because like a lot of times when we see like later religious leaders they're religious leaders because it benefits themselves whereas these people are giving their full selves without expectation of anything in return and yet they're still being scoffed by others who practice religion incorrectly less correct that's the real question so yeah that's that's what i always got from that and from many stories in the bible oh my so many good thoughts. So I'll just add this little piece. Joshua, I loved how you named that it's a song of ascent, but what they're doing is descending. Um, and what's so the song of ascents um, are the psalms that the people of God would say as they are climbing the steps to go to the temple. And so that's where you get the song of ascents. They're literally climbing the mountain of the Lord, if you will. And that climb is its own sort of ritual of preparation, that they're not just running into the throne room of God, but they are actually preparing themselves to walk into the temple, to offer sacrifices. To, so you can imagine they're, 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 they're using these, these few psalms. It's a whole collection of psalms. My Bible calls them pilgrimage songs. Um, but you can imagine slowly walking up the steps and usually be a good amount of them. So they're slowly walking up the steps together. But Josh, what you just said was really true. They might be ascending, but in their hearts, they're descending. Like their posture is descending so that they can they can have a right relationship, a right mindset, if you will, about their relationship with Yahweh. And so I just love that you pull that out because it actually it's it's it is the thing that's happening in all of these psalms of ascent that as they are physically walking up, they are uh, emotionally, spiritually, personally, bringing themselves back to a place where they should be, which then means you become that much more aware of the pains of this life, um, of the the parts of life that are just um, very not ideal. Like, gosh, we've had enough of the mockery, which is what my translation says. We've had enough of the shame. Um, but that stuff is what actually emerges when you come back down to earth, right? <laughs> when you come back to yourself, when you come back to who you really are and not the airs that we often could put on. Um, so I just love the image that you just put in front of us of descending, saying songs of ascent. Like that, that was beautiful, Joshua. So thanks for that. And with that, friends, we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be back for the rest of this episode of Three West Annex. And I just have to let you know that um, during the break, I mean, we had conversations about 
the best looking person at Studio Wesley. Um, I was uh, educated on what it means to have. Uh, is it? It's the term the best drip. Is that the? Is that? Is that the term that way I should be saying it? The best drip. Uh, it's a whole thing. Like I have learned so much, and I'm really excited um, to be uh, educated and also to have a sense of the best looking people in Studio Wesley. It, yours truly might be in that company. But here we go. We're going to go with the New Testament text from 1 Thessalonians. And so we're going to pass it on to Sam. So I was reading 1 Thessalonians and reading my specific uh, section, which is 5, 1 through 11. And the thing about this section is it makes sense. It feels pretty straightforward. But as I was reading it, there was something missing. It wasn't clicking. There wasn't that big revelation moment. And I realized that's because this text works so much better in context. So I'm going to talk about Thessalonians and then get to my section. Because the thing about this is obviously Paul is writing a letter towards this church. But I read this. He's a guest preacher. That's what this is. And I feel like I can't see Derek right now, but I feel like Derek might be laughing because he knows what I'm about to say. This is organized in the order of a guest preacher's sermon. You start off, obviously, with the greeting. You do that in most sermons. But then you start off, you have um, chapter one and two, which is the like acknowledging the good things that Thessalonica, I think that's how you say it, that the church has done. You walk in, I always imagine that this is when like the preacher looks around at the sanctuary and says like, wow, look how much it's grown up since the last time I was here. And he even acknowledges his specific ministry that he did in this church, just like that. And he's going through how amazing it is to be here, how great this church is, my relationship with this church, all of the good work that it's done. Then he goes in, as most sermons do, start with the good news. And so he's talking about Timothy. And he talks about the good reports that are happening of the church. Everything is going well. We have to start off with giving praise. But then we get towards chapter four. And that's when the crux, the meat of the sermon starts. And he begins this kind of call to action idea, right? He starts a life pleasing to God. He starts acknowledging what he wants Thessalonica to do and what he's calling the church and the congregation to do. And that brings us to chapter five. Chapter five is when we get, as some preachers do, this is when we get to the hard stuff. The like fire and brimstone, mm, this is going to be the hard meat of it, okay? And we're going through it. We're going through it. He's talking about the when Jesus is going to come, when the Lord is going to come again. Um, and he's talking about not being asleep. The call to action in this is to stay awake, stay diligent, stay adamant, and make sure that we're ready for when Jesus comes again, for when the second coming happens. But this call to action doesn't really have an explanation. They haven't gotten to the point where they're saying how. Until the very, very, very end. In the last section, chapter verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build up each other as indeed you are doing. This is, he has done an entire sermon getting to this point. He sets the call to action. It begins saying we need to stay diligent. We need to make sure that we are ready. We need to be prepared. We need to be sober. We need to be focused. But how? And the way in Paul's argument that we are supposed to be ready for the second coming and be ready for what Jesus Christ is going to do is to encourage one another and build up each other. The way as good Christians we can prepare and build the kingdom on, of God on earth as it is in heaven is to build up each other and make sure that we are secure. And to further prove my point, he even ends with his final benediction, which is just, you know, you just that's how you got to end every guest sermon. So that's that's how I see this. I see him walking in I know it's a letter, but I imagine him walking into this old place and he's giving a full sermon and he ends it with the final call to action and the explanation of how he's going to do it, which is encourage one another and build up each other as indeed you are doing. So that's my interpretation of it. I want to hear what you guys have to say. I want to hear what Derek has to say because I fully, I've, I've heard you give this sermon. Like I can imagine you at my home church explaining it this way. Well, and I was just thinking... The last time you and I were in the same like in-person room together, I was the guest speaker at your mom's church. Um, and so that that just took me there. And that was that was a really incredible, like overview of Thessalonians. I agree with you, Sam. I think a really beautiful framing 
of the Thessalonian letters is to imagine a guest preacher stepping into the room, um, trying to bring relevance to the space, but knowing that they're not going to be there that long. Um, so I really appreciate the way you the way you frame that and just how you sort of unpacked it for us. I'll say that the, the verse that I actually really appreciate, um, one of the verses I really appreciate is verse 10 where Paul's just like, hey, whether we are awake or asleep, we are all together in Christ. And for me, that's speaking to you know where we were just a couple of weeks ago with All Saints Sunday and the mystery that we confess of the communion of saints. And, and I think it's, it's sort of a part of, again, as we are closing this liturgical year, that we are being reminded that um, we are in this together, even those of us who are technically asleep, those of us, and that could be framed as being asleep in the way that he frames it in First Thessalonians 5, like actually just being like asleep at the wheel kind of thing, but also those who have fallen asleep, which he kind of talks about in chapter four of those who've gone on um, to eternity that we're all in this together. And so there, there is this sense of deep community that um, will mark what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I would argue in a way that other religious groups in Paul's day um, would not be able to, um, would not be able to say, like that the, the community piece of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in first century AD is one of the primary markers that separates this group of people from other religious circles. So I appreciate what you brought there. What else you guys got? Yeah. Um, so Derek, you talked about uh, verse 10 and you said, um, my verse, I don't know what version I even have. What, what is this? New Living Translation. Mine says, uh, Christ died for us so that whether we are dead or alive when he returns, he can live with him forever. Mine says dead or alive. So I don't know. I think of two completely different things. I think dead of alive and asleep and awake. But, you know, similarities, right? So I thought that was interesting. Also, I really like the verse um, three. It says, when people are saying everything is peaceful and secure, then disaster will follow fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin and there will be no escape weird metaphor but the point is when when you're um when everyone's like you're like oh everything's so fun and i know i can attest to this because like i don't know i feel like i've been like kind of like that sometimes or like everything's fine like i really don't need to worry about like all these different things and it's not even just that like when you are so fine and you feel like you're so secure that you don't have time to like take time with God, then when the time comes that you need to take time with God, why couldn't like, then there, it becomes a priority list. Right. So it's like, when is the priority a meaningful one? And when is it not? And that's something that I took from this because I know that in my life, that has been something that I've struggled with a lot, but um, so that was big for me. But I also liked uh, what Sam talked about in where he said, verse 11, mine says, so encourage each other and build each other up just as you're already doing. So it's like ending it off in a good way. And I like that too. Um, but those are the verses that stuck out to me specifically. Um, I'd love to hear everyone else's thoughts. I just wanted to comment on what you said about like the, the content section. Cause I had in my notes, like further section of that. Cause one of the, I don't know where it comes from. Derek, you might know the answer to this, but like I just hear pastors say it all the time. Like the job of a pastor is to comfort the afflicted, but also afflict the comfortable sometimes and make sure that those who are content in where they are and those who are settled into their ways are also pushed a little bit to grow as people and make sure that they are fully living out what they should be. Um, and I like the almost warning, like you said, of like what the danger of being content instead of you will just be stagnant and there will be no growth. It is, it is harmful. It is actively dangerous to be set in your old ways and not continue to grow intellectually and spiritually. You have to think though, like, sorry, just one more thing. It's not like if, if something like really bad happens to you when you're really, you feel like you're secure and you're leaving that God aspect of your life out. It's not God. It's not, Oh gosh, it's not God's fault. It's, it's kind of your fault, right? In a way, you got to think of it like, at least that's how I try to think of it. Like, it's, it's, not, it's not because like, 
God didn't do this to me. Or even, you know, the world did this to me. It's like, at least my mindset is like, you always have to think like it's your fault because at that point, you're only looking to be proactive in the things that you can actually actively change. So you're not like focusing on the things you can't deal with. Slight, really big um, rant there, but like, I don't know. That's just what I wanted to say. Yeah, Elliot, I liked what you talked about kind of being proactive. I mean, I think about being an optimist. Um, it's not other people's fault. It's kind of your fault, like kind of be happy in the situation that you're in. And then Sam also, I've heard that comparison of reading Paul's letters like they are sermons. I've heard it like a couple of times. It's just been a while. And so if you like remind me of that, I appreciate you for bringing that up. Um, for me, when I read this first, what really struck me about was the comparison of kind of this classic, it talks about light and dark. It talks about night and day. It talks about good and evil. Um, and it's just, it's fair. I, what, what really struck me about this verse is it says, uh, you're all children of the light and children of the day. And it talks about not belonging to the night. And I felt like super called out in my sleep schedule because I, I'll be honest, these past couple of days, I had a physics midterm and I sit up really late. And yeah, I definitely was hate to say it, but a child of the night. And so for me, kind of like, it's also like the comparison of like not good in day, like, um, sorry, good in day, <laughs> good and evil day and night. I can't think right now, obviously. So I really like that. And then, um, what was I going to say? Just like what Elliot, I like what all you guys are saying about being proactive. It's, it's, it's not God's fault. It's your fault. God is perfect. Um, things like that. So, yeah. Wow. I'm just loving this. I have to say, um, Sam, I don't know where that quote is from, uh, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. I know that it's, um, it's out there. It's not, I don't think it's scripture, um, but it's definitely in our, in our canon of axioms that, uh, call us to account. And Elliot, I just have to, uh, put my hand up and say, yes, I am the guest preacher that uses a, an analogy that doesn't land well. And so people in the room are like, what was, what was, that's a weird analogy. Okay, keep going. <laughs> um, it gets you to listen. It gets you to listen. Yeah, it does. It makes you like, wait, what did he, what, what did they just say? Uh, okay, just keep going. Just keep, and, and Sam did that when I preached at his mom's church. He's like, wait, what did he just Okay, just keep going. Okay, so I love these comments and um, gosh, the proactivity um, within that text that is, again, like, and this is where I would I would even connect it to Deborah a little bit of this sense of like, there is something in you um, and, and, and there are things that you can do. Um, we're not alone in this life. God's never gonna abandon us, but there's a role that we're supposed to be playing. There are things that we're supposed to be doing. And at some point we've got to, we got to, do those things. And that's actually takes us right into the gospel text. So um, I'm going to talk. Derek, no. <laughs> I just Wait, removed you... myself from the stage. Yay. <laughs> okay. We're going to go right into, uh, let me just pick up here. <laughs> I love it. All right, here we go. So we're going into this gospel text. It's Matthew 25, and it's a story that is familiar to a lot of people. Probably um, there's probably a few details that are a little bit different, but um, it's the story of uh, a, a master who decides to go on a trip, and he's going to put his uh, possessions in the hands of his servants. But the image um, in this particular parable um, are coins, um, which is very similar to the story about the talents. Uh, and so if you know the story about the talents, you know the story about the coins. So he gives to one servant five coins, another servant two coins, another servant one coin. And all of all, all of this delegation is based on what they're able to do, like their own, like their ability to, to work, um, what's in them. Um, in fact, the, the text says, uh, he gave to each servant according to that servant's ability. Then he left for his journey. And so what the servants then do, and I invite you to read Matthew 25. It starts at verse 14. You're going to take it all the way to verse 30 for this full story. But the one with the five talents, he does, he invested and he gets five more talents. The one with the two, sorry, coins, coins, not talents, coins, coins. All right. Um, the one with the five coins, he invested, 
he makes five more coins. The the one with two coins, he invests it, gets two more coins. But the one with the one coin, he buries it. He buries the coin and he's not going to get anything else. And so then the master comes back and he's like, what y'all do with all the stuff that I gave you? And, and the one with the five is like, I made five more. And the, the master's like, fantastic. I'm going to make you rule over more things. And the one with the two coins, so like, I got you two more. And like, my guy, I'm going to make you make you rule over a few more things. This is Derek Revised Standard Version, right? Right. Okay. And, but then the one, the one, he's like, well, I knew that you were a hard man and that you you harvest where you haven't um, planted seed. And, and, and you just, I, I just was afraid. So I decided to just bury it. And, and here's the one coin that you gave me. Here it is. And the master's like, you're wicked and lazy. You knew that I was a hard man. So that's what you decided to do. Instead of, you, instead of putting it in the bank, you buried it. Like, what the? You're going to be thrown into the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, read the whole story. Matthew 25, 14 through 30. Let me say a couple of things about it. One, I want to name that it is very hard for us in... 2023 Western civilization to read this text without thinking capitalism. And so we just, we just want to be mindful of that. We just want to acknowledge that, that we have a cultural framework that really traps us um, from seeing some of the things that this text might be trying to say to us. That doesn't make the text unhelpful for us. It's just that we've got to come to it with humility, that it's going to be really hard for us to deconstruct the, our capitalist mindset from um, the things within this text. So I just want to name that. The thing that I think I find interesting is that, and, 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 and this I think is kind of obvious, it is the servant with the one coin, it is his mindset that this master is a hard, difficult person who's scrappy and um, who is like resourceful, but not necessarily in the most positive ways. I mean, when you think about someone, and let me just read the text real quick just so you can hear the words that he says. Um, he says, um, I, I knew that you were that you are a hard man. You harvest grain where you haven't sown. You gather crops where you haven't spread seed. And I don't know if that's like a positive comment. Like, um, I don't know, but this is his the perspective of this master, and it affects what he does with what he's been given. And I wonder if we devalue, this is where I'm now getting to me and you and, and, and pulling from the text to talk to us in real life. I wonder if we tend to devalue the gifts and talents that are inside of us because of our perspective of the one who gave us those gifts and talents. And so this, this is, this is, this can be tough because some of us have, um, perspectives on who God is and how we feel about Jesus. Um, and those are earned perspectives. You feel, you feel you have a negative sense of who God is because not great things have happened to you. Um, this pings to the Psalm, to the Psalm, right? Where um, I've had enough of contempt. I've had enough of shame. And, and we will often take these, these temporal events and project them towards how we see God. I wonder then that if that impacts how we see ourselves, how we see what we bring to the table. And I think part of the work of the church, part of my job as a campus minister, and even the job of, of your friends in the faith is to encourage each other. This is where Paul's message comes in through First Thessalonians. Like our, our, our work is to encourage each other because there are good things inside of us and there is something to how we see God and then how we then view the things that are inside of us. And so it becomes so important for me as a campus minister, but not just as a campus minister, but as a friend, as a spiritual friend, to look people in the eyes and remind them that they're deeply loved by God, that they're valuable, that they are loved, because it actually will impact, I think, what you do with the things that are inside of you. And so I wonder with this this, this uh, servant with the one coin, I do wonder if there's a conversation that should have taken place with the servants with the five and two coins, excuse me, the five and two coins. 
Like, I wonder if they would have seen their friend sort of asleep and said, hey, that one coin is valuable. It's not five coins. I get it. It's not two coins, right? Like, but it's still a coin. Like, do something with it, guy. Like, come on. This is good stuff that you have. Don't bury it. Invest it. And I do wonder what it would have been like if the five and the two coin servants had encouraged their one coin servant friend. And so that's what I, I mean, we could, there's a few other things in the text, sure, but that's the thing that I want to put, bring to the table today. Like, what is our role in those who are not um, doing something with the gifts and talents that's inside of them? And obviously, again, there's a piece that is about how a person probably sees the one who gave them those gifts and talents. We can even talk about leadership and coaching and things like that. Like, if you don't feel like your coach actually believes in you, then you're probably not going to do a whole lot on the field. Like, I get all of that. but. I, I, I just want to put my finger in the faces of the five and two talent, uh, two, five and two coin, toy, five and two, uh, five and two coin per folks and just be like, I do think you should actually have a responsibility to that one. We're all in this together. And even like, this is where I look at Deborah. Deborah could have easily said, I'm a woman. There's no, there's no way of raise, being raised up in leadership in, in this, in, in the way that Israel is structured right now, I'm just going to, you know, phone it in. No, that's not what Deborah does. Deborah sits under her palm tree and she brings all her coins to the table, if you will, um, and does something with it. And that's then why she gets raised up in leadership. So I did try to connect all the texts because I do like to do that with the lectionary text. But the biggest thing that I want to say, those of us like me who feel like you've got five or two coins um, and you're investing them and you see that things are returning, it's not just about us. I mean, really, it's about it, it really is about the whole group. And we've got to look at our friends with the one talent or the one coin. And we've got to recognize they probably have a really weird view of who God is. And we got to come alongside that and encourage them that they are loved and valued and um, they are important and they're a part of everything that God wants to do um, in the world. So I'm done with that. I'm going to let my friends respond. I'm going to not push myself off the stage like I actually did last time. And I'd love to hear what you all think. Okay, so wow, first of all, that was amazing. But I have two things to say. The first one is it's very interesting to me, knowing you, that you focused on the five and the two. Because I heard you explaining this, and I, which first of all, this is never a metaphor I thought I would say, but Derek, I, the first conversation that me and you had privately over one of these intern meetings, you said, it's my job to see gifts in college-age young adults that they don't see. And I heard this, this, this story and saw you as the master and saw you as the one who is portioning out the thing, which, first of all, never thought that sentence would come out. Um, but yeah, that's how I read it, is the person who is able to step, a, step back and understand what these people are bringing to the table and what they're ready for at that moment. So that's first I started, I feel like Paul right now. I started with my praise and now I'm going to get to the hard stuff because come on through. Uh, yeah. Th this happens in all of our meetings. I'm going to push back a little bit because I completely get what you're saying about the one. And I completely get the annoyance at the, from the master. But also I think it's so important to sit and really dive into that space of that fear. And like, yes, take away your capitalist mindset from it, but also put your capitalist mindset in it. This man has seen this leader take things from others, take crop that is not his, take things he did not work for. And he decides that he's going to give something out. And that fear of somebody at the lower level, somebody who like just by historical circumstance probably hasn't had that much and given that coin, and I think it's really important to really be okay with that fear and say, yes, you were afraid. Yes, you put it aside. You saved it for later. But that completely makes sense. We are able, as people in 2023 who have enough to get by and ha are in good circumstances, are able to say, yes, this is what you should have done better. And this is what could have been done. But putting yourself in that space, I completely get that fear. And like moving it to the context 
of religion. Yeah. I like it is, it is the space. It's exactly what you said with the five and two. It is the space of those who have not been hurt to pave the way and make a safer community for those who have. That's just how I see it. It's the job of those who have privilege to make a more welcoming and advantageous and available space for those who do not. And so we it's yes, we know what the one should have done, but I don't think that's their fault. I think they're in a circumstance where that's all it's that uh, like sociologists call it the tyranny of the moment where like that's that's what you have to do when you are living in that situation of survival, which the master has never lived in. You may make the wrong decision, but it's what you have to do. Um, and so I completely get what you're saying. And yes, you should have done this. But I really think it comes down to the five and the two, but also the master to make a space for that and make an understanding of, I know where you're coming from. I know you've been hurt before. That's not what this is. And in the broader context, this is this is my, I, I swear this is the end of my soapbox sermon, but like in the religious aspect, that is what the role of the church should be, is expanding our space and making it safe again, and making a space that is welcoming and saying, well, you have been hurt, I completely understand that, I'm going to make this hurt less. I'm going to make this a place that won't hurt you again. So yeah, that's my, that was like 10 minutes of our call. Um, everybody else can comment now. That's beautiful, Sam. Wow. I received that pushback. Yeah, I like what you're talking about the fear um, and the people like paving the way. I really like your analysis of it, Derek. I've heard a lot of people like sermons and messages or whatever. Maybe the sex, they focus on the one. So for you to focus on the five and the two guys is like, really kind of need that. Um, but for, I wonder, I think that like one big question I have with this text is, I mean, I think I know the answer, but did those five and two gods, did they fear the master? Um, like, how is this? If they didn't fear the master, if there's no pressure situation, like, yeah, okay. They weren't under the same type of um, stress that the one guy was under. Um, if you read the, when they, uh, when they talk to him, they don't, they don't start out. Oh, I know you're such a tough, terrible guy. So I made these five, like, this is what I did. Yada, yada, yada. Um, and then I just, I think I like when you talk about the fear, Sam, because for me, I think this dude was obviously very afraid. Um, I think in some ways, I think he even devalued that one coin for him to stick it in the dirt and then bring it out as a, it probably was once a clean, he probably gave him a clean coin. And then this, the master gave him a clean coin. And then the servant gave him a dirty coin that's been sitting in the ground for a couple of days. So that's what like sticks out to me every time I read this. It's like this dude, not only did he not even, he didn't give him back the same coin. He like devalued the coin. And I think that speaks a lot about, I like what you talked about, Sam, the fear that this dude obviously had. Um, just know, I guess he kind of knew he screwed up in a way, especially after since he went last. That's another thing I think about the order. I'm like, what if, would the servant have said the same thing to him if the one guy went first? Um, that's another th I just have so many questions about this text. I really, when I get to have one day, I'm going to ask a lot. Um, yeah. And then I even think, this dude probably had a coin, right? Like he probably could have dug in a coin out of his own pocket and give it to him. So I just have so many questions about this text. Um, I'm slowly answering. I'm interested to see your guys' takes on answer some of my questions. But yeah, did did the the two the five and the two guys did they fear him at all? I don't know. And could they, like you said, they should have paved the way and assured that guy who obviously had a lot of fear to not be afraid. They could even, the dude probably made six coins. He probably could have given, you know, one of his coins to the other guy and covered for his loss. I don't know. So many things that I just think about in this text. Probably with my capitalist mindset, I need to take out. But Well, well I just want to say, Josh, I do think that the the way you just even, like, why couldn't the dude with, like, the, the, the you know, you had five coins and now he's got ten. Like, like why couldn't he get just given, like, one of them to, like, like, or, or he could have even been like, yeah, I made five, but I'm going to say I made four and give the one to the other dude. Like, there's so yeah. many things. I, I love again, my capitalist question. mindset is like <laughs> messing with this text, and maybe I do need to take it out, but it is fun. I don't Especially know. I think like, there, I'm there some, like myself. I'm like. There are some anti-capitalist questions in there, though. So I, I think you're you're on the journey, man. Um, so many things that I have love questions it. about this text. I love it.
What do you got, Elliot? I mean, wow. Y'all really covered a lot of that. Um, I'll just have one thing. Y'all talked a lot about each and every one of the servants, but I'm interested in the master, to be completely honest. I like to think about like, what, why did this guy, so the first thing we know about him, right, is like, why did he give, why did he give the servants the coins based on their ability? Like you think of like corporations, right? And like, of course, this is very capitalist, but in business, but whatever. You think of like, um, you know, you you get trained, like you you get, you go through things that are above your workload that you can't deal with so that you can deal with them. Like you don't improve by just working at your means you have to work above your means to improve so it's like like if i was the master i would have given them all the same and see how they did with it like because if i did that then i could see like okay who who is the better worker who's the best investment here like out of all three of these people and it's like also like different because he gave them all different things. I don't know. That's just what I was thinking. So y'all really covered a lot of it, but that was one thing that I was still on my mind. Like why did, why, what if he gave them all the same amount and then see what they did with it then. And then he can really decide like, okay, who's more valuable here to whatever he has going on or what and whatnot. Um, but yeah, that y'all covered a whole lot. I liked what everyone said, by the way. I just love it when uh, folks are reading text and discussing what they're seeing and the questions that emerge and the differing views that we walk away with. I think all of that's valuable. And 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 Josh will just say, like, we're probably not going to answer any of your questions today because we don't have any answers. Um, but I think that the questions are as valuable as the the different takes on these characters and even the pushback of I see it one way and Sam saw it a different way. And like, I think all of this is so valuable to our discussion. So I really appreciate all of you just uh, bringing your A-game to the lectionary text today. So with that, I'm going to ask Josh if he would close us in prayer. All right. Dear God, thank you for bringing us all here today. I hope that people listening to this learned something and got closer to you. I hope... Um, that this podcast continues to work out your ministry and that everyone has a good day. Amen. Amen. Well, so thankful for this episode. Sam, Josh, Elliot, thanks for joining me. I'm pretty sure Michael Yerick's going to be back and Annex will be back to normal. Um, but I have had just an incredible time on today's episode. So friends, thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time on another episode of Studio Wesley Annex. Cheers.